0: An investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Paul Lesko. He is a litigator with Pfeiffer, Wolf, Carr, and Kane. He is based in St. Louis, Missouri, where he focuses on complex litigation, intellectual property, and employment legal issues. He represents individuals, startups, small companies, and institutions who are up against larger companies that infringe upon their rights. Paul received his Juris Doctorate in May 1999 from Tulane Law School and undergraduate degrees in Honors Biology and Biochemistry from the University of Illinois. In one of his cases, in Smokey Allen Farm Partnership at Al versus Monsanto, Paul represents farmers, nurseries, and individuals damaged by the herbicide dicamba due to Monsanto's extend seed system. It is estimated that in 2017, at least 3.6 million acres of crops were damaged by dicamba, and damages are expected to continue. This action has been well covered in the press, including the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the New York Times. I learned about his work on a recent press call in which he joined farmers talking about their legal actions taken against Monsanto, which is now Bayer and BASF for crop damage due to dicamba drift. And I knew I wanted to have him on to talk about the cases. Mr. Lesko, thank you for taking time with me today. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Well, I'm really curious to know specifically about dicamba drift cases, but let's start a little bit before that. You have degrees in biology And I think that that's really important for anyone who is going into a court of law and arguing cases that involve biology. And I don't think many litigators maybe have your area of expertise. How did you go from biology to law?
1: Well, that was back when I was attending University of Illinois. I really enjoyed the sciences. I really enjoyed biology, biochemistry, chemistry, physics, math. Those have all called to me my entire life. But then, even though I was, you know, heavily into the sciences, I also felt a call to be a lawyer. You know, I, I like the gamesmanship of lawyering—the fact that you know you're going up against some of the smartest minds in the world, and you're able to try and present your position of your clients to others, and, and try and persuade them, either the judge or the jury. And why that was important to me is because at the time I was in school in the mid to early 90s there weren't very many people with science degrees going into the law. And I thought that was important that there be people with science backgrounds represented. And and that's really where my calling came into. When I was at law school, there were just a couple other potential lawyers there who had science degrees. And the fields that were open to us at the time were intellectual property, patents, or just general litigation. And I started off representing inventors. Helping them obtain patents on their technologies, because there you clearly need to have a science background to understand the cutting edge technologies, translate it into the language of patentees, and uh assist them to get a patent through the patent office. But with that, it was I- i'd say it's a lonely life because you're not in court you're uh, more transactional interacting with the patent office, and I you know it was at the time, growing up, there were lots of lawyer TV shows on, and I knew I always wanted to be in a courtroom. And I luckily happened to start working at a law firm when patent litigation was starting to take off. There were a lot of biotech companies and chemical companies that had patents and were asserting them. And that's really where I found my calling. It's the fact that you, know, you get to the point where you're trying to explain not only complex legal issues, but complex science issues in a way that the judge and the jury can understand. And most times the judge, you know, he's a former lawyer. He wanted to be a lawyer because he was no good at science or math. And, you know, most members of a jury, they don't know, you know, especially cutting-edge science that's out there. So the challenge of taking these the cutting-edge and explaining it And trying to do so in a persuasive way so they see your side, it was really enticing. And that's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but that's how I ended up becoming a litigator with a science background.
0: No, I think it's really important to understand that. And I think it's important for people with science backgrounds to get into all of these different fields. I know I always appreciate working with journalists who also have a science background because we can start farther down the road with more questions that are in greater depth. So I appreciate knowing this. Now, we have been looking at biotechnology and genetically engineered crops in food and agriculture since the late 1990s. And the majority of these crops, I don't think the public pretty much understands, but most of these crops are commodity crops, and they are genetically engineered to withstand the spraying of certain herbicides. So at first, in the late 1990s, we had, for example, Roundup Ready soybeans. And as those crops were adopted, those seeds and crops were adopted in the field, farmers sprayed Roundup repeatedly year after year, and as many farmers predicted, weeds developed resistance. Now we have genetically modified seeds, so the crops can then withstand spraying with both Roundup or glyphosate, the main ingredient in Roundup, as well as both 2,4-D and dicamba. This is where you come into the story. Because farmers, in using those herbicides, they do indeed take care of the weeds in the field that are resistant to glyphosate. But because of drift, or more specifically, the volatization of this particular herbicide, we are finding damage miles away to other susceptible crops. How did you first get involved in looking at dicamba drift issues?
1: I began looking at these issues in 2015 and 2016 when it was clear that Monsanto was going to get approval of its dicamba-resistant seed and was going to release the seed without an approved over-the-top herbicide for dicamba. And so this raised two red flags for me back then. The first red flag was that, and I'd heard this from weed scientists before, that Monsanto was planning on using dicamba. Dicamba, unlike uh, glyphosate, is volatile. What that means is if you apply Dicamba, if you follow the labels, you follow the instructions, the applicator does everything that they're supposed to, what will happen is the liquid form which lands on the crops or on the soil where you want it to be overnight or as it gets warmer through additional days will evaporate. It will turn from a liquid into a gas. And Once it turns into a gas, even if there's a one or two mile per hour wind at night and you have a gas floating off the crops, you can imagine that you you could have the herbicide could move miles. I mean, a one to two mile wind for four hours, I mean, you go four to eight miles. It's really dangerous for volatility. And while the manufacturers claimed that they were going to release low volatility formulations, not no volatility formulations, but low volatility formulations, there were still concerns because soybeans are probably one of the most susceptible crops to dicamba. Low volatility, no volatility, if you get just a very small amount of dicamba on a soybean, it's going to show symptomology, it's going to be damaged, and it's likely going to affect its yield. Mm -hmm. So we started looking at this case early on in 2015. In 2015 and 2016, Monsanto received approval of the seed but did not receive approval of the -the over-the-top dicamba herbicides. Despite that, they released the seed. And that's definitely a warning sign because dicamba has been around for 50 years. Farmers had realized, okay, this is a good herbicide to use in the way early spring or the late fall when there's nothing green around it. Because like you said, dicamba is very good at killing weeds. (laughs) It's very good at killing plants. Anything that's not resistant to it, will be damaged and can die. So farmers had learned, we only use this when there's not soybeans around, when there's not any other crops around. But when the dicamba-tolerant soybeans were released in 2015 and 2016, and there were resistance problems to glyphosate, which is the main herbicide that farmers were using, there was the temptation by farmers that since their livelihoods are being challenged by these new superweeds, we have to do something. And so there was illegal spraying in 2015 and 2016. Despite the illegal spraying in 2017, the EPA approved use of over the top herbicides, the quote unquote low volatility formulations of dicamba. Those were then sprayed in 2017, 18, and 19. They will be sprayed in 20. And it led to millions of acres of damage of crops. Uh, 2017 was reported there was over 3 million acres of soybeans reported as damaged. And it's important to note that's only reported. Most farmers are reluctant to report damage like that because it could affect their insurance rates. It could certainly affect their relationship with their neighbors. So we feel that even the over 3 million acres estimate is low. Mm.
0: And it's my understanding from Steve Smith, who's with the Save Our Crops Coalition, who has been working to keep this product limited if not off the market because of the crops he's involved with which are tomatoes also very susceptible to damage that the majority of soybeans planted today are indeed dicamba resistant
1: that's correct as dicamba has the use has increased the only protection that farmers have is to adopt dicamba tolerant seeds even if they don't want to so if you can imagine In 2015 and 2016, when there was no approved dicamba-tolerant herbicide, anybody who sprayed the old formulations, if their neighbors weren't using dicamba-tolerant seeds, they were damaged. After you're damaged, you realize, wow, what I plant, it's hard enough being a farmer with weather, with insects, with disease, but now I have to be concerned about what my neighbors are using. So if your neighbors are using dicamba-tolerant seeds, well, then you're going to use dicamba-tolerant seeds because farming is a business. And if you realize there 's going to be an impediment to your business, if there 's a way to get around it, you have to do that so because of that, the growth of dicamba tolerant seeds on the market has increased greatly. I mean, I believe the last numbers are it 's over sixty percent of the market is dicamba tolerant seeds and i 've seen forecasts that you know they should get into the eighties and ninety percent of uh, of the seeds out there for soybeans and there 's a lot of cotton out there that 's dicamba tolerant, and I believe in twenty twenty or in twenty twenty one there'll also be dicamba tolerant corn that will be released.
0: Wow. Well, and I was just in Georgia where there is, of course, dicamba-tolerant cotton. And those are the two main crops that are dicamba-resistant right now. I'm glad to know that, you know, as a heads up, that corn is coming. But in Georgia, there's also a risk with regard to drift to pecan trees. And they have some extension reports out instructing farmers to see what does the damage look like. From a dietitian's perspective... Yes, I'm very sensitive to the economic losses of individual farmers. I have a great reverence for farmers for producing the kinds of foods that keep people well. So no farmers, no food. You've seen probably that bumper sticker. But for the kinds of crops that are being killed off from dicamba drift, the things like tomatoes that I mentioned earlier, and we're going to get into the peach crop, but fruit trees in general – we're talking about foods that keep people well. And I know that there has been an effort to have a class action lawsuit among farmers. Something that I mentioned on the call when we had the press conference was, what about bringing consumers into these kinds of class action lawsuits where it's not just the farmer who's losing, it's also all of the people in that region who are eating and being well nourished by that food.
1: And I'm glad you mentioned the pecans because that's actually a story that we noted. We filed our case in 2017. And as part of the case, Monsanto and BASF has been allowed to inspect our clients' fields. We have 27 clients that are currently named in the lawsuit. And a lot of them are located in Arkansas. So for 2017, 2018, and 2019, I've been down in Arkansas conducting field inspections of my clients each year that their fields are damaged. And in 2017 and 2018, what a lot of the farmers that I represent noticed is that there are pecan trees there. They weren't getting pecans. I mean, these are just you know wild pecan trees that they had. or I mean, it wasn't anything that they were actually farming for consumers, but they noticed that the pecan trees were not producing like they normally did. And along those same lines, a lot of the farmers, you know, they have their own little personal gardens, too, where they grow crops for them. And for the last few years, quite a few of my clients have not had tomatoes because of the spraying of dicamba in the region. So I think this is something that actually is potentially a very big issue. It and, is. And Steve Smith's concerns were twofold. One of his concerns with tomatoes is the fact that they could get the dicamba damage on them, and you could have some yield loss because of dicamba damage. But another issue is the EPA doesn't have a what's called a Residue tolerance, meaning you know, when it comes to certain products, you can have a certain amount of, you have a certain level that you can have, say, junk in there that won't affect the availability of the products. Normally, very low, but it's a number that people say, well, it's healthy. You can have this amount of, you know, something that would normally be poisonous if it's really low, and it won't affect people. Well, there has never been a residue tolerance issued for dicamba. So, if Steve Smith's tomatoes are hit, First, he has to worry about, okay, what's going to happen to the tomatoes themselves? Now, if he has fully healthy tomatoes at the end of the year, if they're tested and dicamba shows up in there, those tomatoes are a complete loss. They cannot be sold on the market. So it is a very real issues that are out there. Now, we haven't seen those effects yet, or if those effects have been seen, they've been maybe masked as of now. But right now, if there would be damage like that, you'd see the producer would be the one that would, at least on the first level, bring the lawsuits. If red gold tomatoes were hit with dicamba and it couldn't sell any dicamba, it would be the first one to bring those lawsuits and bring those issues to light. A consumer claim would be an interesting claim to also bring, but it hasn't been brought yet. And I think it's something that should be looked at.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree because, again, through my lens, this is not only... A farmer infringement and an economic infringement on that farmer's livelihood, but it is a rural community issue and it is a public health issue. So I just want our listeners to understand that. This has far-reaching ripple effects. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Paul Lesko. He is a litigator with Pfeiffer, Wolf, Carr, and Kane based in St. Louis. He is working on complex litigation. The topic we are specifically talking about has to do with Monsanto, which is now Bayer, and BASF and their dicamba-resistant crops and the dicamba drift damage that has affected many farms across the country, especially in the Midwest and Southeast where we have the dicamba-resistant soybeans and cotton. Let's dive into the case with the Bader peach farms because there's an example of, you know, I go to my local farmer's market, there's a gentleman there who has delicious peaches, and I think, gosh, I wonder if there's a soybean farmer next to him who may be spraying dicamba And what that dicamba will do to those peach trees. And oh my gosh, imagine that there wouldn't be any peaches at my local market. Now you're representing Bader Peach Farms. They have lost thousands of acres of peach trees, as I understand it. And they have successfully won their case, which I also understand is going to be appealed. What would you like our listeners to know about this situation?
1: So Bader Peach Farms is a very interesting case because... It's a peach farm, one of the largest suppliers of peaches to the Midwest, multiple states. It it supplied the peaches to. And it had for years, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, and even 2019, had continually had dicamba damage from neighboring fields that had this dicamba tolerant soybeans that were planted there. And it's happened, it's so bad that it, you know, the economic expert in the case for Bader Farms forecast that in all likelihood, Bader Farms would at some point go out of business. The plaintiff's counsel in that case did a very good job, uh, I thought it was a very effective job, of using maps to show how Bader Farms was basically trapped within a sea of dicamba. They showed how many dicamba-tolerant fields were, were around it in 2015, and, you know, maybe there's a dozen or so. But then 2016, it increased 2017, it increased. 2018, it increased. And 2019, it increased. And it just basically gave the message that this poor company is going to go out of business. It had been around for dozens of years. It supplied peaches to many, many people. And in fact, I was lucky enough to be at the trial. And one of the jurors who was during jury selection, one of the potential jurors who was dismissed mentioned that they had had beta peaches before and had difficulty getting them. Mm. so it's actually you know issues that you know you were talking about that were that were apparent there and the trial for that case took place in uh, Cape Girardeau Missouri there was a Cape Girardeau jury that was selected and uh, after hearing all the evidence assessed a compensatory damages against both Monsanto and BASF BASF helped Monsanto in the development of these of the system of the dicamba tolerant seed and the herbicide but assessed uh, compensatory damages against both of them for $15 million and then came back the next day and assessed punitive damages against both companies for $250 million. And that was for their actions in 2015 and 2016 in releasing a dicamba-tolerant seed without a corresponding herbicide, without the corresponding dicamba herbicide that should be sprayed over the top.
0: Hmm. This case is going to be appealed or this award will be appealed. How long do you anticipate the appeal taking?
1: The appeal process is typically slow in federal court. Within uh, 30 days after the judgment, that's when the defendants can file their notice of appeal, meaning they intend to bring it up to the Eighth Circuit. That's the court of appeals that will oversee the jury decision. After that, there's a briefing schedule that will be issued. That'll probably need to be extended due to the number of issues that are likely to be raised. So I think you're probably looking at five to six months, maybe even seven months before the party's positions are even before the Eighth Circuit. After that, a hearing date will have to be selected. You're probably looking at two months out so that the justices can review the materials, become familiar with the materials. And then after a hearing, you're probably looking at three to six months, if not slightly longer for a decision on it. So you're looking at a one to two year process before the Eighth Circuit will rule on any appeal.
0: And in the meantime, Bader Farms is receiving no income.
1: That is correct. I think they might be able to sell some peaches depending on how it works, certainly nowhere near what they need. Bader Farms also does some additional farming for soybeans and other crops. But again, peaches, that's where they make their money. I believe the numbers were they've lost 30,000 peach trees. So you can imagine. And, you know, peach trees, you just can't plant them and they produce. Oh, right. You have to plant them. They take a while to grow to maturity. And so it's just just devastating when you have trees dying, you have trees affected. You're trying to plant that next generation of trees and they just can't get a toehold. So you're losing trees. You're losing trees through the natural whole process of, well, this tree's too old. They can't produce anymore. But you're not able to get any more trees so it's 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 a you know it's a horrible situation to watch and considering how hard how difficult farming is to watch that every year that your profit margin you know it's shrinking every single year and you can see the end coming it's a good thing that Bader Peach Farms did receive this verdict you're right they're not going to get paid on it for a while, so there's at least hope in the future, but you're right as this appeal goes on you know they're just going to have to go through the farming season again this year, keep their fingers crossed, but, you know, it's probably going to be a repeat of the last few years for them.
0: Has Bader Peach Farms and his family talked to his neighbors, and I'm assuming first they reached out to their neighbors, then even perhaps contacting Monsanto that is now Bayer, did they get any kind of agreement from their neighbors saying, you know, I don't want to hurt your farm, I I want to be a good neighbor, I won't spray? What happened in his particular situation?
1: I don't know if there were actually uh, if he actually went out and contacted his neighbors, but I think it would have been futile. In 2015 and 2016, they suffered damage that was from illegal applications. Those were farmers that weren't supposed to be spraying dicamba over the top. In 2017 and 2018 and 2019, he was surrounded by so many farms that had the extend seeds, the dicamba tolerant seeds, and considering how volatility can move, it, it would have been futile. And The joke was in 2017 with all the, that's, you know, when the issues first came out and this is when it was reported that there were over 3 million acres of damaged crops that were out there. The joke among the community was you couldn't actually find someone who would admit the spraying dicamba when probably 60 to 70 to 80% of the people who actually had dicamba tolerant seeds did spray the dicamba. So, and, you know, again, like I said, that's probably out of desperation. They have weeds that they cannot control with glyphosate. This is the next best thing. They know there's a chance that it might hurt their neighbors. They're going to spray, keep their fingers crossed, hope nothing bad happens, and you know, just go from there. So it's, just, it's a very bad situation. And I think you mentioned it earlier, it's fractionated the community because now you have farmers who think they need this technology, so they're going to use it. And you have other farmers that they want to plant what they want to plant. They're not going to have Monsanto dictate or their neighbors dictate what they're going to plant, so you have neighbor versus neighbor where families have gotten along for generations, but now your neighbors may be your you know your enemies uh, because you know it makes for awkward churches, it makes for awkward seeing them in the community, but it's really harmed the farmer community that used to be rather peaceable and work things out i mean Drift cases are nothing new. It was normally due to applicator error, where somebody might have gotten their tractor a little out of line and accidentally sprayed a corner of the neighbor's field. Normally what happened in instances like that is the farmers would get together and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I will make it right. But here, where the product has what we allege is a defect, that no matter how you spray it, you follow the application instructions to the letter and yet there's still damage is going to result. It's very difficult for farmers to want to reconcile that because the farmer who's buying the dicamba-tolerant seed and the approved over-the-top dicambas, they followed everything. They followed the label exactly the way it's supposed to be. But, And Monsanto is telling them, oh, no, this will not drift. If you do this, it will not drift. So if there's damage somewhere else, it's not my fault. I follow the label. I've got a big billion-dollar-a-year company behind me. They're smart. They know what they're doing. I'm going to believe them. When the weed scientists that are out there, almost every single weed scientist out there will say, this is not a safe product. This is a product with a design defect. If you use it, if you spray it, there's a high chance that it's going to volatilize, move, and it's going to damage somebody else's crops.
0: Hmm. Well, there are many news outlets that are covering these stories. And I hope that our listeners will keep track. This is a dangerous practice. I have a report from the Union of Concerned Scientists saying that simply by eating more fruits and vegetables, as well as nuts, we can reduce health care costs in this country by trillions of dollars. So it's a loss to farmers, it's a loss to community cohesion, and it's also a loss to public health. It is a crime against humanity. And I am really thankful for people like you who are going into the courtroom and litigating for farmers and as well as people who would benefit from these foods. As people want to report and to get legal counsel, what advice would you give them?
1: When it comes to issues with dicamba, if uh, you are a farmer, uh, a tree nursery owner, a vineyard owner, if you have suffered dicamba damage to your crops, it's important for you to talk to a lawyer. I mean, just find a, we would like to talk to you. Obviously, we feel very passionate about these cases. We've been involved with them since the beginning. But we recognize that you know a choice of a lawyer is something that is sometimes very personal if you have dicamba damage it is important to talk to a lawyer about it to see what your rights are further you know if there's consumers out there that are concerned about damages or the, the lack of availability of fruits or anything you know again reach out to an attorney see what rights you have you may have rights you may not have rights but that's what the attorneys are there for to tell you what you can do if anything and to assist you along that path
0: all right. Well, we've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio was produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Paul Lesko, litigator with Pfeiffer, Wolf, Carr & Kane, based in St. Louis. I will make sure to provide a link to your particular practice on our website. The link for listeners is simply prwlegal.com. And you can find more information there. Mr. Lesko, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today.
1: Thank you for having me on.